0: Well, this evening, as we wrap up our day together, I want to turn our attention to the first 14 verses of Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, and sermon title for this evening is, They Don't Die, They Multiply. They don't die, they multiply. Hear God's word. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. It's 39 years now, I think. Yeah, that's 1984 It was 39 years ago. And in that year, 1984, uh, the movie Gremlins came out. It was a it was a horror movie with a dash of comedy uh, sprinkled here and there. A man named Randall Peltzer was a struggling inventor and he was looking for a unique a Christmas gift to give to his son Billy, and in, in an antique shop in Chinatown in their in their city, he stumbles across this cute little furry creature uh, called a mogwai. and he's got to have it. But the owner refuses to to sell it to him. And after he leaves the store, the the owner's grandson sneaks out and secretly sells uh, mogwai to Randall because his family needs the money. And this mogwai might be cute, but it's not your normal house pet. There are some rules that you have to follow if you're going to have a mogwai. The boy says to him, first of all, keep him out of the light. He hates bright light, especially sunlight. It'll kill him. Second, don't give him any water, not even to drink. But the most important rule, the rule you can never forget, no matter How much he cries, no matter how much he begs, never feed him after midnight. A happy Randall agrees, names the Mogwai gizmo, and gives it to Billy for Christmas. And even if you have never seen the movie, you can imagine what happens after that. It is not too long before the rules get broken. Some water is spilled on Gizmo, and he began to multiply, and the other mogwai were not as gentle as Gizmo. They used some trickery to get Billy to give them some food after midnight, and they cocooned like caterpillars and morphed into gremlins. The gremlin ringleader Stripe finds a pool and jumps into it. And now this little handful of gremlins multiplied into a swarm that practically filled the whole town, terrorizing it. When it came to the gremlins, the sense of the town was, was this, they don't die, they multiply. And as much as the folks in the town tried and tried as they might to stop the spread of these gremlins, they just couldn't do it. That, friends, is exactly how the Egyptians feel here in Exodus chapter 1. Try and try as they might to stop the spread of the children of Israel. They just couldn't do it. They wouldn't die. They were like the gremlins. They kept multiplying. The text tells us in verse 12 that the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. That is, they loathed the people of Israel, but this is not about the people of Israel terrorizing the land of Egypt like the gremlins terrorized that town. No, what we are seeing in the first chapter of Exodus is the ongoing story of God's promise being worked out in time and in space. This is the continuing story of God's promise promise to fulfill his mission of making his name and glory fill the earth. And so because of his promise, his people don't die, they multiply. There are four things I want to share with you this evening from this passage. Four P's are promise, problem, persecution, and proliferation. Promise, problem, persecution and proliferation. As I've already said, this text is about God's promise. It is about God's promise being realized in time and space, and it is being laid out for us right here at the beginning of the book of Exodus. Uh, None of our English Bibles actually make this, this clear, but the first word in the book, of Exodus is the word and. (laughs) And, and it's it's not shown because it's not proper English to start a sentence with a conjunction. But verse one should be translated this way, and these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each man with his household. And the reason that I am pointing this out to you is because there is an intentional connection that is being made here at the beginning of Exodus with with what has been said before about this family previously, everything leading up to this point through the book of Genesis. In fact, there was probably at one point, Genesis and Exodus were likely a single book. And so then after Moses makes this connection for us. He lists for us the names of the sons of Israel in verses 2 and 3. Reuben and Simeon, Levi and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. And this is almost a word-for-word repetition of what we find in Genesis chapter 35, verses 23 to 26. And if you looked there, what you would find is that the sons are not listed from oldest to youngest, as you might expect. Anybody ask me about my children, I start listing them, I go in order. (laughs) Oldest to youngest, youngest to oldest, but that's not what is happening here. These children, these sons are listed according to who their mama was. If you know the story, there was a lot of drama in Jacob's family. The first six names are Leah's sons and then Rachel's sons, and then the sons of Bilhah, who was Rachel's servant, then the sons of Zilpah, who was Leah's servant. Here's your list. <laughs> Joseph is missing from the list because, as it explained for us in the end of verse 5, he was already in Egypt. Indeed, he was the reason that Jacob and his sons and their families were able to escape the famine in the land of Canaan and, and find refuge in Egypt. And then it says in verse number six that Joseph died, and all of his brothers and that entire generation, everybody died. But do you know what did not die? What did not die was God's promise. Verse 7 tells us that the people of Israel were fruitful. And notice this with me. Those, the words of people of Israel in verse 7 are the same words in the Hebrew text that's translated sons of Israel in verse number 1. It's rightly translated as people in verse number 7 because there's a transition from a nomadic band of about 70 people to a numerous nation of people. Look at the description of them in verse 7. They were fruitful. They increased greatly. That is, they teemed. They were like a, a swarm of people. They multiplied. They grew very, very strong. The land was filled with them, the text says. Here's the deal. They are starting to be as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore which is what god promised abraham but It's not because they are this model picture of a perfect people who deserve this blessing of multiplication. This family was formed through trickery and deception. They're in Egypt because some of their great-great-great-grandfathers sold their other great-great-great-grandfather into slavery. This is a family with a checkered past, but the promise of God trumps everything. Understand, the promise of God is not hindered by the foolishness, stupidity, trickery, deceitfulness, and ignorance of people. I messed up, you are messed up, we are messed up, but we are not messed up enough to throw God off course of his kingdom promises and purposes. The mess of this world and the mess of the people in it does not make God sweat at all. He grieves, but he doesn't sweat. His promise of redemption and restoration of justice and righteousness, it permeates the book of Exodus. That promise permeates the the entirety of the Bible. And no power of hell, no scheme of man is able to throw God off of that course. Indeed, the power of hell shows up right here in our text. Here's the problem. From promise to problem, from the confirmation of God's promise, we move on to find out that there's a problem. There's a problem in verses 8 to 10. A new king came to power in Egypt. Time has elapsed, and we are centuries removed from Joseph serving as prime minister over Egypt and saving that country from doom. All this new pharaoh knows is that the whole country is filled with these Hebrews? What we are being introduced to in verse 8 of this passage is a world and a nation particularly that's ignorant of the Lord. Egypt was the big dog nation of the day. They were the world power, and they had all kinds of gods, but they had no knowledge of the true God, and that ignorance had implications. Look at what Pharaoh says to them in verses 9 to 10. He says to the people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, come. Let's deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. And I put Pharaoh's speech uh, in current American vernacular for you tonight. Pharaoh is saying, We've got a problem with these immigrants. Pharaoh in verses 9 to 10 is giving what I call the Egyptian State of the Union address. His people, the citizens of Egypt, were assembled together to hear him, and he tells them we have a major national crisis. Pharaoh says these people are different than us, and we've let them practically take over our country. They're stronger than us. The the political tactic of leaders creating fear among the people in order to get them to go along with the problem is, uh, program is not new. It is ancient. Pharaoh, Pharaoh, what he did was play on the Egyptian sense of ethnic and national superiority. Back in Genesis chapter 43, do you know what we're told there? That t- at that time, Joseph was... Second in command in Egypt and he would have looked like an Egyptian and spoken the language even though he was a Hebrew and his brothers for the second time had had come down to Egypt from Canaan to buy grain and Joseph prepared a banquet for them but he sat at his own table. And in verse 32 of Exodus, of, of Genesis chapter 43, uh, we are told that the servants served Joseph by himself, and then they served the brothers by themselves. The Egyptians, it says, ate with Joseph as well, and they were separate from the Hebrews. And then it tells us why. It says because it was an abomination for Egyptians to eat with Hebrews. And that attitude had not changed in centuries. So Pharaoh does not have to create a sense of national superiority or hostility Egyptian toward Hebrew. All he has to do is use it for his advantage. He says in verse 10, people of Egypt, we gotta deal shrewdly with these immigrants. You gotta be wise in how we deal with the Hebrew problem. They are a threat to national security. We have a whole nation of non-Egyptians living in our country. They're not loyal to us. And if war comes, they'll join with our enemies and fight against us. They will take your wealth. They'll take your power. And look, we should be seeing some parallels. We should be hearing some, some bells ringing in our own minds. We can look at our text and see the evil that is at work in Pharaoh's heart, we can clearly see the power of hell behind the problem that is presented in our text, but we should also be able to make a connection to the current day. Listen, here's the deal. Every time you want to have uh, a political uh, uh, uproar, all you have to do is talk about immigration. Oh, every politician does it. And here's the thing. It's as if we're not talking about real people made in the image of God and deserving of dignity. What are we going to do about those people? Here's the deal. I am not making a, a, a political position or perspective, but, but this is the point. Whenever we have a those people kind of attitude, a they're different than us and are going to destroy us kind of attitude, what we are seeing is a heart that is closer to Pharaoh than it is to Jesus Christ. What we see Pharaoh saying here to his people in Exodus chapter 1 verses 9 and 10 reminds us of the fact that the image of God is imprinted on every soul, and that fact has implications for how we think about people and how we treat them. In Egypt Pharaoh himself was the image of God. So if you were not his people, you could be treated and dismissed as less than human and unworthy of dignity. And here's what I'm getting at. We have a natural tendency to categorize people into groups of others. Who, Whoever those others are, they, are, uh, they become thought of as those people. And this makes it easy in our minds to actually dehumanize people and think of them only as a commodity. We want to know, do those people add to or detract from our society, and God would not have us look at and think about image bearers in that way. That mindset and heart is incompatible with God's mission. Indeed, it's it's no small point that our Savior Jesus lived as an immigrant and a refugee in a foreign land escaping persecution. We're told that about him in the Gospel of Matthew. The problem of the dehumanization and commodification of people in our text, what it leads to is a horrific persecution. We're told that in verse 11, because of Pharaoh's powerful State of the Union address, the people are on board with the slavery and oppression program. They set taskmasters over the children of Israel to afflict them with heavy burdens, it says. They built store cities, Pithom and Ramses. It says in verse 14 that they made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. Two times in verse 13 and verse 14, it says they treated the Hebrews ruthlessly. That word for ruthless always includes violence. We are getting a picture of how bad it was for the people of Israel. And here's what I want to point out in this point on persecution. There is a connection here with what happened in Genesis chapter 11. At the end of Genesis chapter 11, God calls Abraham to himself, and then he makes the promise to Abraham that he's gonna bless him and make him a great nation, and that account in Genesis comes on the heels of the Tower of Babel incident. And here is the connection. The people who stood against God's command at Babel in Genesis 11 used the same language that Pharaoh uses. They said, Come. Let's make bricks. Come, let's build ourselves a city. And here is Pharaoh in Exodus 1. Come, let's deal shrewdly with them. And just as the people of Babel were building a city and a tower against God with brick and mortar, the Egyptians are forcing the people of God to build cities out of brick and mortar that stand against God. Why? Because those who stand against God are always committed to building monuments to their own glory. The concern of Babel was that they didn't want to be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. The concern of Pharaoh is that the children of Israel are dispersed over the face of the whole land. The persecution comes because what we are seeing is the ancient battle between the city of God and the city of man. In God's kingdom, in God's city, he's acknowledged to be the one with all of the power, all of the authority, all of the glory. When the Lord is not acknowledged as the one with all power and glory and authority, what people do is heap up power and glory for themselves. The contrast at play here is the pursuit of being God versus the pursuit of loving God. And that's not only relegated to past. A dear friend of mine, uh, Karen Ellis, who works for RTS in Atlanta, she gave a message a number of years ago at a conference that was designed to lift up and empower the, the church, to demonstrate the power of the gospel, to create options for those in in poverty, fresh options that address real needs. And she, she gave a speech titled, My People, My People, a letter to the church in America. And she said the point, she made the point that if God is on the throne, there's no power struggle. If that's our acknowledgement, if we're on the throne, through self-exaltation, you have oppression somewhere, somehow. Power is always going to be abused in a situation like that, and someone is going to be denied the right to their God-given humanity. Satan, she said, is incredibly unimaginative and uncreative in his tactics, but he's so effective because, she says, he's good at marketing. Here's a direct quote. She said, While the social fabric of oppression change from age to age, the general contours of abuse and degradation remain the same. It's just different packaging. Look at the similarity from one oppressive regime to another. The destruction of name and identity, the destruction of culture, violation of women, emasculation of men, false accusations, unjust courts, the limiting of travel, zone housings to substandard conditions, denial of societal advancement. These are the same things we see here in the oppression of God's people in Exodus chapter 1. Pastor Pastor Caleb read from The book of Acts, guess what? Turn to the book of Acts so there's the same things you'll see in the persecution of the church in Acts. Turn to the book of Revelation, you'll see the same things in the persecutions that Christians were enduring in the seven letters of Revelation 2 to 3. Those are the same facets of human degradation that black American Christians had to endure during slavery and Jim Crow. Those are the same tactics that are being employed today by people who are hostile to Jesus and his kingdom in countries all over this world. Different faces, but the same tactics. Now that fact might leave us depressed tonight, were it not for the other reality that comes back around in our text. We started this message with the first few verses, seeing how the promise of God trumps everything. The promise of God is supreme over everything. It trumps the fact that the people of God are messed up and don't have their act together, but it also trumps the power of Satan in his attempts to destroy the work of God. Look at what it says in verse 12. But the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread out, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. The result of the persecution was proliferation. Pharaoh's evil and oppressive tactics had the absolute opposite effect of what he desired. Why is that? That's only because there's no power of hell or scheme of man strong enough to stop God or throw him off track. They expanded exponentially. Listen, this is what the Lord Jesus is getting at when he says in Matthew 16 and verse 18 that I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus promises not even the gates of hell itself will be able to stand against his kingdom of God expansion program. There's a song we used to love to sing at. Church, I pastor Jesus, my great high priest. In the last stanza of that song we sing, should all the hosts of death and powers of hell unknown put their most dreadful forms of rage and mischief on, I shall be safe, for Christ displays his conquering power and guardian grace, his conquering power and his guardian grace. Safe. In the arms of Jesus is the song of the people who belong to Jesus, especially in the most intense, harsh, and difficult of conditions. Persecution in Egypt causes the Old Testament church to expand. Persecution in the book of Acts causes the church to expand. Persecution in China causes the church to expand. They don't die, they multiply. We quote from Sister Karen Ellis again as I wrap this up. She says this, The church expands exponentially under persecution because Satan unwittingly creates the very environment where the need for hope and faith in Christ are most necessary. If you keep reading through Exodus, you'll find at the end of chapter 2, that Israel is going to be groaning and crying out to God for help because of their harsh slavery, and God's gonna hear and respond as He always does in the ultimate. Fulfillment of God's promise for proliferation to Abraham is not found in Exodus. It is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ can declare himself to be the divine promise maker and promise keeper who doesn't promise that his people won't have to endure hard persecution. No, he promises that persecution won't hinder his expansion plan for the kingdom of God. And how is that possible? It's possible because it in Jesus Christ, we have a God who is both savior and sufferer. He's the one who both delivers from oppression and was oppressed and afflicted himself. He took on every vulnerability, including subjecting himself to an oppressive regime. The Bible says that it was fitting that for God to make the founder of our salvation perfect through suffering. If you are in Jesus Christ, what you have, what we have together is not an invented past about stories about people far away that do not touch the reality of the difficulties of life today. What we have is the reality of a saving God From Genesis to Revelation who continues to push back against the darkness of human degradation and oppression and violence and injustice with his power that sustains and enables his people to flourish in the middle of it. In Jesus we have a God who continues to press his mission forward. There are at least two applications or implications for us here as I close. You know, we can find ourselves in both positions described in this text. We can, the first one is, is personal, right? do. Do I have a power struggle? Do you have a power struggle? When you sit in your seat of authority, over others, whether you're an executive or a teacher or a medical professional or a mom or a dad or whatever it is, who is on the throne? The lordship of Jesus Christ over you influences and directs the way you exercise your own authority. If it is not the Lord Jesus Christ who has ultimate authority in your own life, you will somewhere and somehow abuse your power and influence for your own glory. So this is a hard task of hard examination. And the the second implication is more corporate. Texts like this remind us, remind us to be in constant prayer for the persecuted church. The church won't die. Jesus has promised it, but he delights to hear our prayers and use them as a means to bring comfort and peace and even joy to those who are enduring persecution for the sake of his name. So whether we are in power or persecuted, what we do is look to and rest upon the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Because as our resurrected king, he sits on the throne with all power in his hand. And he got to that exalted place by embracing the vulnerability and pain of the oppressed. And so he's got both covered. And because of that, this church will never die. She'll only multiply. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that we're not dependent on our own strength (laughs) for this multiplication, this growth, this expansion of your church. We thank you for your promise, and we thank you for your preserving power through pain and difficulty. And ask, Lord, that you would bless us to embody this truth Day in and day out, bearing witness to your power for the world to see. Glorify yourself through us in this way. We ask it in your name. Amen. Amen.